welcome to Act Online, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Zsa producer. Forced labor camps have been embedded in Chinese politics since the birth of the People's Republic of China. Mao Zedong created and instituted these camps to terrorize and indoctrinate anyone who didn't fall in line. Today, these camps are more prevalent than ever. Not only are they hothouses for indoctrination and torture, but the products they produce are sold globally, generating more profit for the communist regime. In this episode, Eric Cohn, Acton's Director of Communications, sits down with Wei Feng Zhang, Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, to discuss Dr. Zhang's troubling research. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Dr. Wei Feng Zhang is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. His work focuses on bridging the field of natural language processing and machine learning to economic policy studies. His other research interests include political economy, U.S.-China economic relations, China's economic issues, and fairness in artificial intelligence applications. Today, we'll be discussing the subject of his August 23rd piece in Discourse, The China Challenge, The West Struggles to Respond to Beijing's Forced Labor Camps, co-written with Christine McDaniel. Wei Feng Zhang, welcome to Act in Line. Thanks for having me, Eric. So let's lay this out at the beginning. Um, you, you start in the beginning of your piece uh, talking about the history of, of forced labor camps in the People's Republic of China. Um, tell us a little bit about the history and then tell us what the situation is today. So the history of the practice of forced labor in China is actually quite long. Um, and the Mao actually started this forced labor system as soon as the uh, People's Republic was founded in 1949. And in fact, one of the uh, perhaps most famous um, prisoners of the labor camp was actually the last emperor of China. And so the last emperor of China was uh, for a while uh, running a uh, puppet state in Northeast China, and he was later captured by the Soviet Union. And then, so after the People's Republic of China was founded, uh, the Russians handed over, handed him over back to China. And Mao, after uh, he was t- handed over, immediately put him into one of those prison camps. And uh, he was there for years. And what we have now known afterwards was that he thought uh, he, he spent a good uh, a chunk of time in, in prison. And he actually did not confess to his war crime until several years uh, being in the prison. And so the practice of um, persecution before prosecution were, uh, was very, uh, has, has a long history. But it, all of this uh, actually got way worse, um, at least coincidentally, after trying to join the WTO. Because uh, around the time, around the year 2000, the turn of the century, there was a religious group uh, called the Falun Gong. Uh, the practice of the religious group in China was very popular back then. But in the late 1990s, it was uh, persecuted by the Chinese regime because they were gathering, demanding 
some form of freedom eventually. So that's it went a little bit beyond the religious practice. And so that uh, was seen by the Chinese regime as a threat. So after those practitioners were cracked down upon, uh, they were put into uh, labor camps too. And since then, the uh, practice of labor camp really sort of uh, blossomed, to use a, not, not, not a good word to use in this context, but it sort of blossomed because now we see um, perhaps millions of Uyghur, minority Uyghurs, who are in concentration camps like this. And what, what they do in those camps um, is work for factories. And so goods now are possibly being made being, uh, uh, with the forced labor used in it. And those goods are sold around the world. So that's the challenge now. It's not that the West or Western countries did not know about this before because it, the, the history is very long. But it really uh, got to us now because the goods we buy, we, we go to Walmart, they could have been made with forced labor and we don't really know. And that's really what concerns us uh, even more now than, for example, when, uh, 12, before, when it was uh, 20 years ago. So you mentioned the Uyghurs. If there's a story of uh, subjugated people in China that I think gets the most coverage, although I would certainly argue that the Uyghurs don't get as much attention as I, I think they should, um, it, it's the Uyghurs. We heard that in particular uh, when there was a blow up with um, the NBA that we heard about. Uh, it, it resurfaced again when Disney made the live action version of Mulan in, I believe, the province where uh, most of the Uyghurs are being held in, in labor camps. And in fact, thanking the province in the uh, credits of the movie. Uh, that is the most well known of those stories. Um, who else, what other groups uh, are also been forced into labor camps like this? Is it just, it's not just the Uyghurs, is there more beyond that? And who are they? So I mentioned the Falun Gong practitioners. That was sort of, uh, I think the first big wave of uh, prisoners in those camps. The Uyghurs are the, the latest, but in between um, dissidents and even minorities in uh, Tibet are also put in, some of them at least, we don't know how many really, then that's the problem, the lack of information or transparency. But we know that Tibetans were, some Tibetans uh, are in uh, those labor camps. The uh, Mongolians are in uh, labor camps and minority groups tend to be uh, the majority in uh, labor camp prisoners. But it, it's, that's not necessarily the case because a lot of practitioners, of, for example, the Falun Gong was actually the majority Han uh, Chinese people. So there are uh, several major groups and it, it, it gets... The practice is, uh, gets wider and wider in the sense that sometimes the uh, Chinese authorities, they would put these um, minorities in the camps and then they transport them to somewhere else, like outside, for example, Uyghurs being transported outside of Xinjiang. And then they ended up uh, working in factories in many different provinces. And those factories, they, they sell the goods, uh, partner with international brands and um, sell those goods all, all over the world. What do we know about the conditions that exist in these labor camps? There's a very influential, um, great book. It's very hard to read, uh, but it's published earlier this year by Amelia Pang. Uh, the book's title is called Made in China. I, so I was born and raised in China. So I, I thought I was growing up, I always thought, I thought of myself as one of those, those you know, like smarty pants, <laughs> knowing a lot of things. Uh, but it's... Uh, I, I knew the, the practice of forced labor, but I, I didn't know it was that bad until I read this book this year. So it, it was documenting one of the practitioners of Falun Gong, and, and that uh, person was put in the concentration camps for 
uh, labor camps for um, many times. Actually, every time they they caught him, they forced him to. Uh, he was tortured. They were they asked him to sort of confess to his uh, practice of false religion and to swear that uh, he would never do it again, and also to give out a name of somebody you know who also practiced the, the same religion. So then the the authorities can go after them. And so that gentleman did not want to comply. And so that's why he was uh, put in jail for many times uh, over and over again. And then uh, he was even tortured. And it seems to be quite common too, because we now we have seen more and more um, people who have gotten out of the camps and then they they were able, uh, they were brave enough and uh, were able to tell the story. So, so it seems to confirm that the practice of torture, for example, is, is quite common there. And uh, of course, they, they, they force you to confess and they... Uh, through torturing you, they try to get the names of the uh, in your networks who somebody else the, they also want to ca- capture. Basically, is the force the labor part of it? Is it just seen primarily as a again to, to use terms that just seem tasteless in in this context, like a fringe benefit of an effort to subjugate and control a certain number of people, or is the forced labor part of it a major part of why they're doing this? I think the like you, I, I think you you hit on one important point in your question, which is the the matter of social control or the uh, importance of social control. And that's a key part of the Chinese regime for uh, since the beginning, anyway. And so the uh, pulling dissidents in jail was actually the primary purpose for uh, those forced labor camps in Mao's time, for example. The people, they, uh, whoever they didn't like, they put in uh, labor camp without ever actually going into the pro- uh, going through the legal process and uh, to to have the uh, defendant have the you know the day in court. So that's not. Uh, standard practice in China. Standard practice is they just round you up uh, when when they don't like what you say. And but the and then there's the economic component that kicked in later because when, once you have all these people in those uh, prisons, labor camps, and uh, if you ask them to work for something, and you need to pay them or pay them very minimal wage, and that actually is good for local governments too because a lot of these camps they are um, administered or managed or owned by local governments. And local government has been in financially a very bad situation for many years now. And so they see this as at least some way of getting some profits. And so there are a lot of journalists, actually, brave ones. They go into China, they pretend to be merchants to negotiate with those prison camps and local authorities to say, yeah, can we, you know, we sell these shoes in, you know, uh, Netherlands and uh, can we negotiate to buy your, uh, some raw materials or products that made by your prisoners? And some actually was, were able to get through to learn a little bit more about what's happening in there. So the economic motive sort of kicks in and you, you can certainly see that motive being more and more significant now that China is much more integrated into the global economy. But the, the beginning was actually uh, the motivation was social control. And then why not also do it for the money? It's the second part. To what extent are American companies aware that inputs for their products or a certain part in the assembly line of their products being uh, completed or that those inputs are being created in labor camps? I mean, do, you know, to to what extent do they know the depth that that goes? That I don't know if I have the answer. But what I can say, though, is that uh, last year, actually, during the pandemic, there's a think tank in Australia called Australian Strategic and Policy Institute 
And they had a report um, under the name Uyghurs for Sale. And so they basically use satellite images. They track down all these factories that are uh, uh, concentration camps that are uh, forcing the prisoners to work for those factories. And they realized that all these um, providers in China, local factory providers, they are providing materials for uh, 80, as many as 83 global brands that sell these products overseas. Now, it, it's possible that those global brands, the global companies, they didn't know it before, right? Perhaps they didn't know it before last year when this uh, influential report came out. But now they certainly do because uh, those researchers at the think tank, they actually reach out to these uh, global companies and ask, are you aware of this? Can you clarify? Are you using these uh, providers in your supply chain? So, so those companies, they know. Now, very few of them have taken uh, action so far to, uh, to, to eradicate the behavior or change how they source materials uh, from China. Some have uh, made those changes, but not a lot. And so that suggests that uh, perhaps it's also possible that they actually knew it before and they just didn't acknowledge it. They didn't do anything about it because now that we certainly know that they know and we don't see still a meaningful change. Why do you think those companies are resistant to changing it? I mean, you you think you would like to think that an uh, you know American product or at least an American you know originated product, and you know we we understand and stipulate the complexities of you know the slogans like "Made in America" are never really that simple. That you're getting inputs from all around the world. You know, I I, I pencil got it right, but, but nonetheless, a company that could make a, a claim in their marketing that you know how they've responsibly sourced the inputs to all of that, and and as you just mentioned, companies certainly to some extent would seem to know, but either they're okay with it or they don't care or they don't see the benefit in the value of changing or they don't think that their consumers would be willing to pay a a slightly higher price if they sourced those materials from someplace else. why, Why do you think there's that resistance to incorporate that idea of of human rights and embrace it to understand that where they've been sourcing it from is from a deeply morally, uh, not even questionable, but abhorrent place and make a transition? Why are they so staid and just stuck in the current way of doing it? So the short answer is certainly that the economic interest is what's causing the uh, uh, ignorance of the fact or not uh, the inaction uh, to counter this problem. So economic interest is certainly it. But and the, but more deeply, I think this debate uh, you, you just uh, brought up, Eric, is the same debate that we, we had for many years now about what's called corporate social responsibility. Uh, because that's like, basically the idea is to say that uh, companies, they should not only care about profits, but also how responsible, socially responsible they should be the, to, toward the society. Now, there, uh, you, you can't use profits to justify that. There are some, although some scholars, they, try, they tend to say, yeah, if you do the math, perhaps sometimes caring for social responsibility would be actually good for your bottom line. Uh, that's <laughs> oftentimes not the case because otherwise we, we, we know it's, it will be in your accounting system and you, you uh, concede, take that into consideration, right? So it's actually uh, some scholars, they try to justify that. But what really happening was that that's not, really uh, um, good for your bottom line. And so the, uh, the wave of the thinking that, uh, later about corporate social responsibility is to say, perhaps if the consumers care more about 
whether the, the, the company is socially responsible. Um, if they care enough, then the corporations would also need to care because otherwise they would lose their customers. This is, I think, precisely what we are seeing now with the forced labor issue in Western countries. Because for a long time, uh, American consumers, they, didn't, uh, they, they weren't quite aware of how bad the situation was, right? And so for a long time, all these corporations, they were able to, uh, you can think of it as double dipping, uh, meaning that you have a large crowd of consumers here in the U.S., and you were able to do all these things in China without being noticed or without being complained about. And so now the, the picture is very different because consumers now, they, are, they, they, they care about the issue. And in fact, many consumers, they try to ask their providers whether your uh, product is made uh, with forced labor. And then even though the corporations, some, some of them care, they, it's, it's hard for them to answer because after so many steps in your supply chain, it's very hard to, uh, to track down whether you actually use some of the forced labors, which is why, why uh, we, uh, my colleague, Christine McDaniel, and I wrote this piece and sort of contemplate on a possible solution using technology is that perhaps there, there's a way technically to trace each step in your uh, supply chain to verify that you actually do not have forced labor. So then you would uh, get more business from your consumers that, because that's really what drives the bottom line now. I, I'm, I will admit to being somewhat fascinated by the seeming hypocrisy traps that a lot of these companies set for themselves, um, particularly in, in view of what you brought up with the idea of corporate social responsibility, that you'll have a company inveighing against uh, an election law in Georgia or Texas while at the same time sourcing materials from uh, from China, uh, from other places with, with forced labor. And of course, there's a long American history of all of this of you know, we, we subsidize tobacco farms while also spending money to tell people not to smoke. And we seem to set these kinds of traps for us. It is just, I guess, striking to me that in the, the preoccupation with this idea of corporate social responsibility, and I think your technological potential solution to it is an interesting one, but there, it does seem that there's a greater demand that they might be responding to, to be engaged on um, very parochial political issues without really paying much attention to what's going on in China, because even in this globalized economy where you can connect instantly to someone else around the world, there's still a bit of out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, that's certainly true. And it's also true, that's a great point, because it's also true at the national level. If you think about you know, uh, Western governments and how much have they done about human rights abuses overseas, right? And even on the issue of Uyghurs, uh, Christine and I, in the piece, we were sort of going through what the G7 countries uh, were saying when they came out, uh, to what, what they were saying about the issues of forced labor in Xinjiang. And what we found was that the, the language is already weaker if that country sells more stuff to China. Now, you, you could say, it's, yeah, correlation doesn't mean anything. Well, but it could also mean that they are just soft on China because they have interest in China, right? And so it's really indicative already. And so we are not even talking about actions. We are, in, we are just talking about words, right? What you put out in your statement. You, you are, so when national governments, they are concerned about their economic interests with China, they would become soft in uh, even the official statement regarding the issue. And that makes you think that to some extent, that's natural. The cynical uh, version of me would say that that's natural. Natural because... As a national government, when you negotiate with foreign nations on international issues, you have not only economic concerns, but also strategic concerns. And so, so, so you have to think about all these other things on your mind. And that's why precisely 
uh, if you go look back uh, in history, we, if we think about the apartheid regime in South Africa, so it's, it's, it's atrocious. But what have the U.S. administrations uh, done back then? For, for example, the Carter administration didn't do much because of the economic interests. Right? The Reagan administration, interestingly, did not do much as well because South Africa was considered a potential uh, important ally for the United States during the Cold War to go after uh, the Russians. Now, you could also say that, yeah, going after the Russians in the Cold War is an important uh, cause, right? So, so maybe uh, turning a blind eye or, on the human rights issues in South Africa might be justifiable at some level by some government actors. So it goes back to the, the corporate issue is exactly the same because you could also say that the uh, investor's interest or stakeholder's interest is a legit, legitimate interest for the corporations because that's what really uh, uh, drives the uh, uh, corporations, right? You have to be responsible to the, the stakeholders because they own the shares. And so I think the uh, trade-off is always there. We it, It's unrealistic to, to hope the corporations or governments to to be wholly responsible just for human rights issues and not for other things. And that it's the same, by the same logic, we cannot only hope that, we should not hope that they would be responsible completely about economic issues and not to any other non-economic issues either. There's always a trade-off and I think it's the same at the corporate versus the national level, level as well. Vis-a-vis your point about South Africa, it's it's essentially the central point in um, Gene Kirkpatrick's the Gene Kirkpatrick's dictatorships and double standards that you know the United States in dealing with foreign governments often, um, in fact, in most cases, don't get to choose between you know other great Jeffersonian democracies and terrible dictators. It's in most cases between a terrible dictator and an even more terrible regime, and they're playing each other, these against uh, other ones. In in the South African case, it was against the Soviet Union. In current conversations, it's against China. But I, I guess what I'm wondering your thoughts on is clearly we made that evaluation that the the evil of the Soviet regime was so clear and so pronounced that we were uh, at, at least in the end of the Cold War and in, in Reaganite language on this pretty unwavering in what we said about the Soviet Union. Um, it would seem obvious and unnecessary to state that we have not arrived at that point vis-a-vis China. Now, we are far more economically uh, entangled with China, which does make this uh, a lot more difficult in a way that there was really no possibility of us becoming economically entangled with the Soviet Union because they were very clearly dedicated to a, a system that was failing them in the way that China, in liberalizing markets... There is the opportunity for us to be entangled with them. And I guess I'm asking you to theorize here and and, and feel free to reject answering the question if you want. But like what would a tipping point look like Like if if we're looking at a situation of effectively slave labor being uh, contributing to the inputs of, of products on the you know just the simple human rights question? And we're by and large as a society looking at that and going, eh, whatever. What what would a tipping point have to be uh, for us to change our minds on that? Yeah, so that's a very deep and difficult question because ultimately it comes down to how much we care about these values or the violations of those values overseas, right? So you, you may uh, contemplate a, a scenario in which Americans only care about these values that Americans have 
domestically, and they don't care anything about what's happening in the, for the rest of the world. In the rest of the world, that's possible. If so, if that's the case, there's no tipping point, because ultimately, whether there's human rights abuses in other countries like in China or back in the Soviet Union or South Africa, is to a large extent the, the affairs of that government or or their people, right? So if the peoples do do not rise up, or uh, there's only very there's only very few things. We can do if our people don't care about it either. So that's why going back to the the technology thing is that about、uh, tracking source origins of product and whether they have forced labor. If American consumers care enough, it will be reflected in the motivations or incentives of the corporations. That would give them an incentive to perhaps adopt such a technology.、Uh, for example, we have seen that in the chocolate industry, right? Because the chocolate industry is plagued with、uh, using child labor. But now some companies they are starting to have.、Um, now, if you think about chocolate, it's it's also very complicated. How can you know which ingredient during the supply chain, long supply chain that has possibly used、uh, child labor? But in fact, companies they are able to do that. They have they they have uh, internal uh, technologies uh, trying to trace in each step of the way whether they could have been exposed to child labor, and then they they would、uh, use the information to clean it up. And the same with Walmart as well. If you have、uh, food poisoning, you go to Walmart. They will be able to trace、uh, what you bought from the store, and then all the way up the supply chain to find out where that uh, uh, poisonous uh, component might be. So, technologies are already there. Now, if American consumers they care enough, I think corporations will have the incentive to do that. And so, in the end, I think the the tipping point questions is really ultimately about the strength of of American democracy or. The values that we we hold here, how strongly do we care about our values? I think I'm seeing some good signs in recent years.、Uh, the fact that the more and more Americans now are aware of at least the existence of forced labor uh, uh, in the goods they buy in、uh, markets, and I think that awareness is the first step toward、uh, making at least some sort of progress. Now, I I don't know how far that would go.、Uh, we have seen. Uh, uh, examples in history where that didn't go too far, so I, I guess we'll have to see. It's in the end, it's a question for the American people: like how how strongly do we care about these values? And that, of course, rests upon you know education and our civil society, our、uh, political discourse, and、um, all this comes down to our day to day life. And I, I don't see an、uh, easy way to get around that to say, yeah, let's just solve this problem once and for all. It depends on the people. If the people don't have the will. Then the problem will still be there. When we opened up trade with China, there were people who made the argument that one of the benefits is, as you saw, the liberalization of markets in China. If we started to trade with China, that we would impart some influence on China and perhaps change that system. That there would be downstream effects. Of the openness between the two countries, that the value set of the United States would influence China, the pressure would grow for while、well, you know to to match the market liberalization that they had with political liberalization. I think we've seen pretty clearly that that has not happened. Were we foolish to think that those downstream effects would happen?、Um, did did we just Kind of either fool ourselves into thinking that that was the case, or was it just a, a convenient argument to make?、Uh, 
uh, to stand in for what was really at play there, which was far more about dollars and cents and the money that's available in China that you so clearly see being the driving interest in incidents with the the NBA, for example, that, you know, the reason they came down so heavily on Daryl Morley when he made the, the comments about Hong Kong was because of all of the investment that the NBA has in China, um, the the number of the amount of sales that they do in China of their of NBA related products, that they play games there and that they didn't want to lose the income. Right. I, I think that's certainly the consideration here. I think ultimately when if we look back, I I tend to give the benefit of doubt uh, to the policymakers, the U.S. policymakers uh, who were responsible for letting China in the WTO, because I think that decision was really made with the best of their knowledge, um, meaning that when we open up to China or allow uh, include China in the global economy, it would not only become economically more free, it would perhaps at some point also become politically more free. Uh, the first part is um, very well studied in economic uh, literature. It's actually true that if you open up and uh, they would become economic, they will be richer economically, and then they will keep be also become economically more free. The second part is an illusion. It's an uh, hope that people, at least back then, widely had. And we also have to acknowledge that sometimes um, trade liberalization does change a country for the better. We have some examples. It's just not that... Uh, such a, a gigantic economy like the Chinese one or the uh, a, a great power like China that didn't turn that way. But there are examples in the past that were uh, actually that way. And I think that sort of uh, was underpinning the U.S. policymakers' decision to say perhaps the same would happen to China too. Now, we, we, we don't know until we try because I, I remember very vividly, uh, I, I went to college around the time when China joined the WTO. And by the time I graduated from college, I got the, uh, the minor award, the uh, university medal from the, from the school I went. And the, um, there's a, a, a award ceremony. Somebody was giving me the award. And I, I remember being not too happy about it because the guy who was giving me the award was China's chief negotiator for the WTO accession. And he was wildly unpopular in China back then. Why? Because Chinese people, I being one of them influenced by the propaganda and all these uh, national news in, in, in China, I was thinking, like other people, that he's the, he was being criticized as a traitor to the country because he gave up too much to the Americans. They, he made too much uh, uh, concession in order to join, join the WTO. Nevertheless, that's at least the mainstream view of public opinion in China, is that we, we were doing this nevertheless because we want to change for the better. That gave us the pressure to reform our economy uh, make us be, uh, become stronger, economically stronger, economically freer, and perhaps uh, politically freer too. And so he was not popular because uh, he was giving too much concession. But we, want, we wanted those values. That's why we are still moving forward. I remember that very uh, vividly. And the reason I mentioned that was because even the Chinese people, they thought that at least a certain uh, enough Chinese people also thought that way too. So I don't see that as a terrible mistake. It's just based on what they knew back then seemed to be the best decision. It didn't turn out that way. And that's the realization that brought us today is how, where do we go from here now that we have allowed in a great power so integrated into our day-to-day -day life and it's not free. So what do we do about it? That, that's the big question that we're facing in Washington for many, many years to come in my view. 
I think also with those in, in questioning those supposed downstream effects of that they would have on China of our engaging with trade and uh, with the country, to me is that in addition to the economic trade that would go on, um, we would also have, as, as I think you can look in history and see examples of cultural exports, um, where you know in in different points, especially in the um, the in Eastern Europe. Um, Sneaking in rock and roll, for example, as being a major cultural part of the uh, attraction to uh, America, the cultural influence that the country had on those Soviet satellite republics. But I think we see perhaps the opposite happening where our cultural exports are being either crafted from the beginning – or being edited in order to appeal to Chinese audiences. And a lot of movies that get made, the choices of which movies to make are made with the idea of a Chinese uh, audience downstream being either first in their mind, or you see other examples, um, for example, uh, the upcoming sequel to Top Gun, where you know uh, Maverick's jacket in the original movie, he has a uh, Taiwanese flag patch on it, which is now missing from the sequel, that we're censoring ourselves. So if there is a values exchange, perhaps, you know, the I think the most radical uh, voices on this would suggest that we're not imparting those American values to China, but we are starting to interpolate some of those values of China into uh, into us. Do, do you think that's the case or is that an overstated argument? I think that is the case. Uh, to a large extent, that's a precise description uh, of many of the cultural exchanges we have. It, I say that because it's not only in the entertainment industry, it's also in higher education uh, systems and also in uh, mass media, news media outlets as well. So, and the reason I think is there's an aspect which I think is vastly un- uh, overlooked uh, in the, uh, as a feature in the Chinese economy is the, um, the copycat strategy the Chinese regime has. And that... I think compromise the power of the cultural uh, soft power, uh, so to speak, that America has. And what do I mean by that is to say, consider Google, right? Google has long had the interest to enter the Chinese market. It has a lot of money in it. Um, for, for a good reason, they're interested in it. Now, you might say that the cultural influence, the way we wanted to go, would be to say, Google would say, yeah, uh, let's make money, let's go into the market. And then Chinese people will be able to use Google to search whatever terms they like, including uh, all these terms that are not allowed, independence of Taiwan, independence of Tibet, or any thoughts you might have when you want to search. But then what the Chinese government has been pursuing in the past 20 years was to actually cultivate domestic domestic equivalents of these foreign companies, big tech platforms. And by the time Google is uh, contemplating entering China, China already had a Baidu, which is the Chinese version of Google. And so the Chinese government was able to make a threat to say, we have to play, you have to play by our values in order to go come in. Otherwise, you don't get to come in. Now, normally you, was, you would think that uh, chi- American corporations are very powerful. Uh, foreign governments, they, they want to make concessions to welcome you into their market. Not in this case. Because the Chinese government's threat is credible because they had a domestic um, uh, possible replacement that's perhaps just uh, as good, right? Chinese people can still search for many things on Baidu, except that they can't search uh, uh, 
the independence of Taiwan and the national security operatives might knock on your door if you do that many times. But other than that, you 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 live a life just uh, perhaps just uh, just as good for ordinary Chinese folks. And so, because of this copycat strategy, I think the the, the Chinese government, uh, through working with corporations in the economy, has achieved this power uh, in the negotiation in uh, when they deal with foreign companies. And that's why I think the reason we see all these examples you gave is the 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 opposite direction of the cultural inference. It's precisely because of the the success of China's uh, copycat strategy, in my view. What, in your opinion, is the number one thing Americans most misunderstand about China? I think the blunder uh, the Western world has had after China joined the WTO was the misunderstanding. The fact that all these undesirable policy or behavior, we started off this conversation with forced labor, and uh, it was pa- like that's a good example because it was passively allowed, but then it became something actively pursued by the Chinese government, and the practice of uh, stealing intellectual property uh, is the same. Um, it was passively allowed. I, I remember growing up in China, and then when I first left mainland China to go to Hong Kong, and uh, I realized the first time I had to pay for software, and I remember thinking, what what. What in the world do we have to pay for software? I, I just download it online. Why can't you just download online? Because that's exactly what we did in uh, when, when I grew up in China. And so all these behavior, they were pass, sort of passively allowed. But then after China joined the WTO, because there, are, there have been more op- economic opportunities, they became sort of internalized or institutionalized. And I, I think we, this is what we did not see. Uh, in the West or uh, uh, by U.S. policymakers and the uh, American people. And so now that we should recognize this fact that, that we we should not have the hope that economic freedom uh, would lead to political freedom. So we have to tackle this issue by abandoning this old perception that everything would be better because all these bad behavior, they could become worse actually if you engage with them more. And uh, how do we start from scratch and think about the strategy to counter Chinese influence is a national conversations that we need to have and, and which I, I'm not uh, hearing as much so far. In your piece, you talk about the potential technology solution that companies could utilize to understand their supply chains, to know whether or not that they're sourcing from places that are those inputs, those parts of their products are being created by forced labor. What can an individual do, if anything, the individual consumer who knows about the existence of these labor camps, who knows that those inputs could be in products that they're buying at Target, at Walmart, anytime they're picking up a product that says made in China. What, if anything, can the individual do if they're concerned about these human rights issues? I think at, um, at the mathematical level, uh, there's really nothing that each, just one individual could make a change. Right? <laughs> Even if one uh, super aware, self-aware uh, consumer decided to not buy any products with, uh, made with forced labor, assuming that we could actually know that, uh, it's not going to change corporate behavior. And it's the same as saying that any single vote is not going to change the election, almost impossible. But I think if enough consumer 
know that and start uh, behaving this way that could put pressure on uh, corporations to actually trigger that change. Uh, I think in, in the end, to make that happen, it's not, it's not a choice or anything action on the part of any single individual. It's about the culture or, 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 or our society, whether we could actually aspire to a state where we actually practically care about these issues, not just uh, saying it. And in the end, I think that's really what the China challenge is, is that the, the only way the U.S. could have any influence in Chinese behavior, in my view, is that when the U United States or the American people, they create a better version of the world that the, chi the, the chi uh, China wants to be in or wants to be part of. And that's when uh, America would have the, the biggest bargaining power over the, over the Chinese behavior. And, and I say that because we have tried engagement, like, like we have talked about now for uh, the engagement for the 20 years. We, we have now learned engaging with China is not a solution. But um, in order to change the Chinese behavior, we can't do regime change either, right? Because the U.S. obviously is not good with regime change as what we have seen in Afghanistan. And so what else can it be? Actually, the, the, the Chinese government was willing to make all these concessions back in 2000 precisely because the WTO, at least in, uh, in their view, was something that they aspired to join. They, they liked that version of the global economy. They wanted to be part of it. And that's why they make all these concessions. And so now I think that the problem for the United States is we, we need to cultivate something that we are proud of and they want to be part of again as well, again. And that uh, that's what the only thing that can give us bargaining power in terms of making China to uh, make some changes in order to be part of this better world. And um, making consumers and the entire economy aware of all these, uh, the cost of made in China good is cheap, not because the material is cheap, it's because of perhaps also these uh, undesirable things. And that should be part of our consumer's behavior uh, at the macro scale. And that perhaps is the only hope we have in terms of uh, uh, getting rid of getting rid of that in our day-to-day -day life. Dr. Weifeng Zhang is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Today, we've been discussing the subject of his August 23rd piece in Discourse, co-authored along with Christine McDaniel, entitled The China Challenge, The West Struggles to Respond to Beijing's Forced Labor Camps, a link for which is included in the show notes of this episode. Weifeng Zhang, thanks so much for joining us today on Act in Line. Thanks for having me, Eric. My pleasure. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Zsa, Zsa.